Welcome back, everyone, to the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here. My sincere thanks for tuning in. And also a big thanks to all Patreon and CHP Premium subscribers. I got to hear this episode weeks ago without these ads that I've been reduced to inserting in these shows to support my podcasting habit. Sino-Roman Relations Part 2 this time. The main focus, of course, will be on the Tang, Song, and Yuan, and their relations with the Byzantine Empire. The big takeaway from last time was how, throughout the greatest years of Rome and all through the Han Dynasty, because of a simple twist of fate, these two empires, with all their economic wealth, power, and desire to become acquainted, were always kept apart. Second, third centuries, the world was still big enough, and the sheer distance of Rome to Chang'an was still great enough, and the obstacles in the way daunting enough, that it proved to be a major deterrence that got in the way of this ancient meet-and-greet between diplomats from China and Rome. The two never managed to hook up. So as I mentioned last time, Sino-Roman relations of any substance never happened leaving all of us to speculate about one of the many great what-ifs in ancient history. What if they had managed to get to know one another, engage in direct trade, and create a relationship that was conducive to the direct exchange of ideas, technologies, and philosophy? If Rome in the West and China in the East had managed to connect that far back, how might that have affected us in our day? Our main meals to feast on with respect to the history of these times have been portioned off into essentially five stories that happened between 97 and 284 AD. That essentially tells us not too much. Because of a favorable set of circumstances at the time, we know of the adventures of Zhang Qian, who traveled far, visited many lands, came back, and wrote very clearly about all he had seen. But there were also many other unknown Zhang Qians who traveled far and wide, but perhaps didn't have any literary aspirations or yearning for immortality, and left no record of where they had traveled and what they had seen or heard, which might have profoundly affected our understanding of those times had we known about it. I'd wager this group of unknown witnesses to ancient history comprises the largest percentage. We in our day can only know about what got written down and managed to make it down to our modern age. By the Tang Dynasty, however, the world was a much smaller place than it had been during the Han, and a lot could happen in 400 years, especially in a place like China. When continuing with this story about Sino-Roman relations, the line starts to blur as far as which of these official embassies to China were political in nature, originating from the palace in Byzantium, and which ones leaned in a more ecclesiastical direction. It's, it's really hard to tell. Over in the divided Roman Empire, things had fallen apart in the West. The Goths sacked Rome in 410, the Vandals in 455, and then in 476, it was all over for the Western Empire. And from that point forward... The focus, as far as the rump Roman Empire was concerned, shifted to the surviving Eastern Roman, or Byzantine Empire. Over in China, 
Yeah, same thing. The 5th century was no less tumultuous. Northern China had been taken over by marauding nomadic warriors from the various tribes of the steppe who invaded the Yellow River Valley and Central Plain, smashing and grabbing all the good things built during the Qin, Han, Three Kingdoms, and Jin. China was divided up, and one dynasty after another tried to hang on to power long enough to take a stab at uniting the country and putting it back the way it had been during the Han. The fall of Rome and the eastern Jin dynasty, when both fell around the same time, what followed was a period of division and frequent war. Let me just mention, in China, during these trying times, it was a great period for Buddhism. Buddhism really enjoyed a great leap forward amongst the nobles and the masses. However, that's not part of our story here. The father-son Sui dynasty emperors Wen and Yang ultimately achieved unification of the country, and by their time, end 6th, early 7th century, they knew all about Rome, or thought they did. They were still clueless as far as the history and political reach of Rome. From the very beginning, the Chinese officials' understanding of Rome had always been the Rome of the eastern provinces more than the city. And Sui Emperor Yang, he tried, without success, to establish relations with Rome. We know of Sui Yangti's yearning to reach out to Rome from the primary source that all historians have hung their hats on with regard to relations between Tang China and Fulin, as the Eastern Roman Empire was referred to. This is the old book of Tang, the Jiu Tang Shu, where we can read about a series of delegations sent to Chang'an that came in the direction of lands contained within the Byzantine Empire. Fulin is believed to be a Chinese transliteration of the word Rome in the Iranian languages of the day. So Act 2 in our story begins in the year 643. It had been about 360 years since the last Roman embassy that had sent tribute from Rome to the court of Emperor Wu of Jin in 284. By the time of the 4th century, events going on in Rome and China put Sino-Roman relations on the back burner. But not during the Tang Dynasty. The year 643 was during the last years of Emperor Taizong. People were on the move like never before in recorded history. The wealth created and the economies built from all this trade, going back to the Han, had led to the establishment of all these great Central Asian cities. And more vessels were taking to the high seas than ever before after so many discoveries and improvements in navigation and shipbuilding. Silk continued to play a central role in China's trade and diplomatic relations where Rome and elsewhere was concerned. By the 6th century, the secrets of the silkworms and the cocoons and how to weave silk garments and accessories was already being duplicated and even surpassed in quality by the silk industries in the Byzantine and Sassanid empires. In 552, you may recall from that old CHP History of Silk episode, Emperor Justinian had sent these two Persian Nestorian monks to steal the silkworms and bring them back to Byzantium. Once they got to see how the whole process worked, it didn't take them long to infuse their unique skills into the manufacture of silk and come to dominate the market. Chinese silk 
continued to flow in massive quantities to the West, but more of it was increasingly silk floss, the raw material used to produce fine silk fabrics. One scholar of Sino-Roman relations who had particularly studied the silk trade said of this imported Chinese fabric that once it reached the Roman Empire, quote, the closely woven, quite heavy material which the Chinese exported was completely unraveled and rewoven on the looms of Tyre, Sidon, and Berytus, and other cities of Syria into a much lighter, transparent gauze, often with other materials woven into it. And it was this that the Romans knew as silk, not the brocade with which we usually associate Chinese silk. This is what the Chinese were buying, totally unaware that they were simply buying back their own silk. End quote. Constantinople and Chang'an were the two most economically vibrant and cosmopolitan cities in the world during the Tang. It was a time of countless traveling merchants, like the Polos of Venice much later on, who provided so much of the narrative that ultimately got written into many of the official and unofficial histories. Within the Roman East, there was a growing curiosity to learn about China. An Alexandrian in the westernmost reaches of the Byzantine Empire, Cosmos Indicoplustus, who lived in the mid-6th century, wrote an influential book in its day called Christian Topography. Aside from maintaining that the world was flat and that the heavens formed a kind of box with a curved lid, like a pirate treasure chest, he was the first to clearly write about China to his audience inside the empire. He referred to China as Chinitsa, presumably from the Persian Chinisan. He described it as a country of silk. Repeatedly, throughout antiquity and into medieval times, it was always silk that defined China. In his map, he showed China all the way on the farthest eastern edge of the map, with Cadiz and Spain in the farthest west. Alongside the official histories were thousands of other stories that never got told, but would have attested to all kinds of mixing of peoples along the many human highways, populated by travelers of both the religious and commercial sort. These were the days when our world was still very malleable and was being molded into the shape we recognize in our day. So 643 AD, an embassy from the Byzantine emperor, Constans II, visited Chang'an, the first one ever recorded in the Chinese imperial histories. Constance II was referred to in the old book of Tang as Bodo Li. This was the first of four embassies mentioned in that work. Four mentions of contact with Fu Lin, and not once do we know with certainty that any of them were sent on orders of the emperor or some frontier authority. Like Ban Chao, when he sent Gan Ying west in 97 AD, that had been Ban Chao's call and Gan Ying was sent under his authority rather than the emperor's. So 643 is an interesting time in history. For Tang Taizong, he was near the end of his reign and at the peak of his powers. His empire was the greatest China had ever seen so far. He was warring with his neighbors and dealing with family crises and still remained very hands-on as far as how he ran his country. And over in the West, the Prophet Muhammad had been gone a little more than a decade. The Byzantine Empire was suddenly facing a pugnacious Umayyad dynasty. 
Some scholars have suggested all four of these embassies to the Tang court from the Eastern Roman Emperor had Chinese political or military support as an ulterior motive to the tribute they sent. From the historiography perspective, this 643 mission was yet another unsatisfying meal. The emperor's representatives came, presented gifts of Roman glassware and green gemstones, perhaps beryl. And it was recorded that the great Taizong expressed his satisfaction for the gifts and presented the embassy with a generous heaping of damask silk. The next one in 667 happened during the reign of Gaozong. Constance II was still reigning in Constantinople. The usual baubles were proffered by the Byzantine ambassadors, as well as one other gift of interest. Among the presents that were ceremoniously handed over to Tang Emperor Gaozong was an elixir, or theriac. These kinds of concoctions were always very high in demand by those who could afford them. The origin of this theriac was perhaps Persia, where these ambassadors to the Tang court are thought to have originated from. This theriac presented to Gaozong was some first-century panacea, renowned in the ancient world for its alleged efficacy. By the time of this embassy, Gaozong himself was already in his long period of physical decline, and his empress, Wu Zetian, was sitting in for him as the chief executive of the dynasty. There was another official visit of representatives from the Byzantine Empire. This was in 701, the year the poet Li Bai was born. Not much mention of this 701 embassy that happened during the Empress Wu's Zhou Dynasty reign. Nor for the one sent to Chang'an in 719, the Kaiyuan era of Xuanzong. The only thing of note that was written about in the old book of Tang about the 719 mission was that gifts presented to Emperor Xuanzong were two lions and two antelopes, as well as some holy man of great virtues. There's no mention anywhere about what happened to any of these tribute gifts. The 701 and 719 missions, like I said, weren't political in nature and were most likely led by Nestorian monks. In the Tang, what we start to see in growing frequency are these missions between a new kind of Eastern Roman ambassador, diplomat. These were Manichaean and Nestorian monks. Yeah, pretty much from here on out. All visits between the emissaries of the Byzantine Empire and Chinese royals from post-Anlushan Rebellion Tang till about the mid-Song were from the two religions I just mentioned. The Nestorians, many people have heard that name, perhaps aren't sure who they were. In Chinese, their religion was called Jing Jiao. The Nestorians were followers of Nestorius, Patriarch of Constantinople, beginning in 428. This is early Liu Song in China. But three years later, he was declared a heretic at the Third Ecumenical Council in 431. And rather than submit to the church's will, Nestorius and his sizable amount of followers split from them instead. And these were the tireless Nestorian missionaries you always hear about who made such great inroads into Central Asia and China. From these and other embassies that visited the imperial court in Chang'an or Luoyang, the Tang government learned more and more about the general situation happening over on the other side of the world. They were well informed about the rise of the caliphate and the new dynamic in Western Asia. 
In China, they referred to the Arabs and their land as Dasher. From the Eastern Roman Empire into the Song, there are records and other written accounts of Nestorian monks and practitioners of Manichaeism. And of course, there's the whole story of the Kaifeng Jews during the Northern Song. So these visits from these monks and other ecclesiastics from these religions, they may not have been officially sanctioned by any political leader, and their purpose may have been strictly limited to propagating their faith. Nevertheless, these people naturally became the primary conduits between Constantinople and the Chinese capital, Chang'an, Kaifeng, Hangzhou, or Datu, the future city of Beijing. You may recall from my CHP 180 episode about the early years of Christianity in China, I mentioned a little bit about the goings-on in early church history in China. I also mentioned the famous Nestorian stele carved in Chinese characters and Syriac writing. Many of you recall the story of the Nestorian monk Alopen or Alopan in Mandarin who came to China in the year 635, early in Taizong's reign, less than a decade before that 643 mission sent by Emperor Constance II. Alopen's claim to fame is that he's acknowledged as the first Christian missionary to come to China, arriving nine and a half centuries before the Jesuit greats Ruggieri and Ricci. By 638, the Nestorians had made great penetration and were well protected by the Tang government. And the Nestorian stele, attesting to this, was later unearthed and can now be seen in a museum in Xi'an. By proclamation from the Emperor Taizong, Alopen was also granted the approval to build a monastery and to gather 21 monks, and that's how the first church got built. I'm just mentioning this in passing, even though the story of Alopen isn't really part of the history of Sino-Roman relations. As far as the cozy partnership between the Nestorian fathers and the Tang government, that all came crashing down after the Taoist-leaning Wu Zong emperor signed off on his infamous Edict of 842 that greenlighted an outpouring of religious persecution after so many centuries of tolerance going back to the Sui. The next major blip on the Sino-Roman relations radar happened during the Northern Song under Shenzong and Zhezong. These were in 1081 and 1091, a terrible time for the Byzantine Empire, now under assault from not only the Abbasid Caliphate, but the Seljuk Turks as well. From within and without, Byzantium was in crisis during the period of these two missions, noted in the Book of Song and another work called the Wenxian Tongkao. The Wenxian Tongkao was written during the Yuan period by a retired court historian named Ma Tuanlin. This work in 348 volumes offers us a nice window into all aspects of the Chinese state from ancient times to the early 13th century in the southern Song. Every few centuries or so, these kinds of works were compiled that kept all the ancient works alive and added to the millennia-old accumulation of Chinese wisdom. According to the Wen Xian Tongkao, there were many missions that were sent to China. But among the uh, <coughs> cognoscenti, baby, these two in particular, 1081 and 1091, they were known as the Fulin embassies to the Song Empire. Like all the others, 
They offered up the usual tribute gifts, but no one can confirm whether or not these were real missions sent from the central authorities or if it was another dubious one, like in 166, where some group of merchants, in order to cloak themselves in a wee bit more gravitas, passed their delegation off as an official embassy from the Byzantine emperor to Kaifeng. Scholars and researchers have a healthy debate going on as far as who exactly was behind these two missions. Chinese documents use the same fulin term for both Byzantium and the Sultanate of Rum that covered most of Anatolia. So who sent these embassies? Again, from the material historians have to work with, no one can say for sure who was behind these two embassies of 1081 and 1091. Both are long on description of gifts and short on actual relations. By now, the question of who was Roman was hard to assess. It wasn't like back in the Han Dynasty anymore. Again, Byzantium had more things on their mind than making friends with China. They were now fighting for their own survival. And it will be their slow demise that will provide the inspiration that cranks up the gears of war that resulted in the Crusades that occurred between 1096 and 1291. The last thing I think I can add to this history would be the tale of Giovanni da Montecorvino. He's better known amongst English speakers as John of Montecorvino and lived from 1246 to 1329, late Southern Song and early Yuan. Again, this is sort of rehash from that CHP 180 Early Years of Christianity in China episode. John of Montecorvino's story in China is clearly a case of an embassy that came from the Roman Catholic Church. From Pope Nicholas IV, the same pope who had met with Mongol envoy Robin Barsama after he had just been elected. The details of that whole interesting adventure can also be found in that CHP 180 episode. Now, John of Montecorvino set out from Rome in the year 1289 in the capacity of a papal legate to the Mongol Khans. A legate is just a personal representative of the Pope to foreign nations. So he was the Pope's man, and not the emperor at the time, Michael IX. So late 13th century, he took off and traveled to Persia, then to India, to continue the work begun there by St. Thomas more than a thousand years earlier. And right away, John of Montecorvino became a rainmaker for the Catholic Church and seeded a long trail of converts wherever he went. Both he and Pope Nicholas IV no doubt had their ultimate sights set on China and the unlimited potential that existed there. If there was ever a time to go on a mission to China, political or religious in nature, this was it. Kublai Khan was famously open-minded when it came to establishing relations with visitors from afar. He was tolerant of religions and different cultures. So John of Montecorvino and the institution that sponsored him had high hopes for when the big moment came in the court of the Kublai Khan. But alas, a colossal setback, what this whole long journey was all leading up to, the big moment, well, it didn't happen. By the time John of Montecorvino pulled into Kanbalik, modern-day Beijing, the great Khan and benefactor in China to many of the great religions of the world, had just died. This was in 1294. The succeeding emperor, Temur Khan, the Yuan Emperor Chengzong, wasn't a big fan of foreign religions like his grandfather Kublai, but he tolerated them. 
And thanks to this continued tolerance during the post-Kublai Khan Yuan dynasty era, the church continued to enjoy relative smooth sailing in China. And this conduit between Rome, albeit the church in Rome, and China remained open. Most of all, these previous missions going back to the Tang had been led by Nestorians. John of Montecorvino's mission came from the Western Church in Rome. So they were, I guess you could say, competitors. And by now, I guess you can see the Western and Eastern churches were the main representatives meeting with Song and Yuan officials, or even the emperor. John of Montecorvino went on to become a superstar in China, getting permission for not one, but two Roman Catholic churches that got built in Kanbalik, one in 1299 and another in 1305. In 1308, Pope Clement V had John of Montecorvino consecrated as Archbishop of Kanbalik. John had established churches not only in Beijing, but in Fujian province as well, in the cities of Xiamen and Quanzhou. Even after John of Montecorvino died in Beijing in 1328, the work he started kept moving forward for another four decades, until 1368 came along and the Ming Dynasty founder Zhu Yuanzhang came out with an edict that expelled the Christians from China, just like Tang Emperor Wu Zong had done in 842. And by the time of the mid to late Ming, a new era in relations between Rome and China will develop between the emerging European kingdoms and states, all spawned by the Roman conquest and the empire at its height. And these people will be the ones who start beating a path to China's door, led by the Portuguese, the Spanish, and Dutch. So as you can see, the history of Sino-Roman relations is an interesting one in that, as I've tried to show, they never really took off in the first place. And by the time humankind reached that stage in civilization where traveling these very long distances became more commonplace, the ones who drove the relations were the men of the cloth, the representative of the churches in the West and in the East. They sort of took it over. And that's where it's easy to say, after the 8th century, and maybe even in the 7th century, those embassies from the Eastern Roman Empire were led by monks more than secular representatives of the crown. There's still a lot of research being done, and perhaps this whole narrative could be vastly embellished if I could read from Arab and Iranian sources. I'm sure there's plenty of stones waiting to be overturned that will reveal more insights into the relations between China and Rome and how much these two greatest empires in their day really knew about each other. One quick plug before we head off silently into the night. You got young kids studying Mandarin? Here's a nice series of books to add to your collection. New from Dr. Edna Ma, Travel, Learn, and See, Bilingual English Mandarin Chinese Books. It's a beautiful book about diversity and friendship and a wonderful introduction to Mandarin Chinese. So said the famous Lisa Ling. Links at the show notes to find out more. Travel, Learn, and See, Bilingual English Mandarin Chinese Books for Children. New from Dr. Edna Ma. So that's going to be it for now. Class dismissed a little early this time. Sorry, after two episodes, we weren't able to get even a handshake or exchange of meaningful treaties between the two emperors in Rome or China or their foreign ministers. Not nearly as bad as Geraldo in the mystery of Al Capone's vaults back in 1986, but just the same. Not a lot of row in that ball. 
Once more with feeling, I know every podcaster this side of the international dateline is hitting you up for money. It's what we do. You can go to the official website at teacup.media, hit the support tab, and there you'll find a veritable plethora of different ways to support me in this dark hour. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles City in the state of confusion. Please think about coming back next time for what's already being billed as another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.